Hi everybody, I'm John Sherwood and this is my podcast where I seek to fuel faith in Jesus in the 21st century. I'm a minister of the gospel and believe in making disciples who make disciples because Jesus really is beautiful and amazing and worth following with everything that we have. You can check out more resources at my website, johnsherwood.com, where I write about the intersection of faith and modern culture, as well as Bible study, leadership, and faith interviews, all designed to help ignite and fuel faith in Jesus Christ. And with all that, let's dive into the episode. as F. Lagarde Smith. If you ever see the cover of a book by his friends, he's known as Lagarde and some by Flugard. If you don't know how to pronounce his name, you just see it on the title. So uh, Lagarde, thank you so much for joining us here today. Good to be with you, John. So uh, I had the great opportunity to first, I think, meet you and hear from you through a mutual friend of ours, Dr. Douglas Jacoby. Um, And you published a book at that time, uh, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, or a little longer perhaps, called Who Is My Brother? about the idea of fellowship between Christians and how do I understand the parameters of the brotherhood and um, how do I know who's in and who's out and all those kinds of famous questions that we as restoration movement people love to ask. And so um, I was able to first uh, get introduced to you there and then had an opportunity to work with you a little bit at a conference that I helped put together called Unboxed, uh, where you spoke about uh, some things on evolution and science and um, and that really piqued my interest. You, you sort of tantalized us all that it was um, some thoughts that you were hoping to put in a book and get published. And that has since been published called Darwin's Secret Sex Problem. Wow, what a scandalous title. Exposing Evolution's Fatal Flaw, The Origin of Sex. And so maybe... Um, if you don't mind, I know this book was just recently published, I think in this last year or so. Uh, in, in your own words, maybe give us just kind of a brief synopsis of the book and what it is that you're trying to cover, the ground you're trying to lay there for this book. Well, the book covers two major areas. One is evolution itself. Um, and the other is uh, a section that I added at the end that I'd not originally intended to write which addresses the whole idea of evolutionary creation. Okay. A lot of theologians have bought into that God Mm. created, but he used what is basically Darwinian evolution Mm. uh, as his method of creating. Gotcha. Uh, In the first part, let's leave the second part alone for a while. Mm. Uh, The first part is pure science. Mm. It has absolutely nothing to do with Genesis or any biblical account. Right. What I wanted to do was strip away any theological uh, implications and just start with science itself. It sure. seemed to me, and I don't know where I started having this idea. Um, right. I'm sure uh, others have thought about it. Um, in fact, um, scientists themselves, evolutionists themselves, called uh, the problem I'm dealing with in this book the queen of evolutionary problems. Mm. Uh, and and actually, they are thinking in terms of one of two parts that I address, um, and that is the origin of sexual reproduction from asexual reproduction. Right. Uh, and, and that is a huge problem. Right. There's a separate problem as to uh, how 
you can get from one species to another species mm. uh, sexually. Mm. Uh, and that would be necessary in order for there to be common descent, which mm. is the assumption that's so fundamental and bedrock to the evolution theory, Darwin's right. grand macro theory. Right. Uh, Let me pause you right there for a minute because you mentioned this word macro. And so I know in the book you talk about, uh, you make this distinction, I believe, between micro and macro evolution. And how oftentimes I think for probably many people who even listen to this and many people in the general public, there is no distinction. And so maybe that distinction is helpful to be made here of what's the difference between micro evolution and macro evolution and how does that fit in with not only your book but also Darwin and his theories? Okay, uh, here's the interesting thing. If you took a poll of people and you just said, do you believe in evolution? Mm -hmm. Well, they'd be like deer in the headlights, most of them. Right. Because uh, anyone who is a believer um, probably thinks that God created, mm. uh, but that um, evolution happens. Mm. And they're right, of course. So um, if you say, I don't That's believe in evolution, yeah. If you right. don't believe in evolution, you're crazy. Because, you're just denying the facts, right? Yeah, but you're crazy because the whole world knows that evolution happens, and it does. Right. It does. Right. Um, evolution is change. It's adaptation. And mm -hmm. species change, and they adapt. Mm -hmm. But apart from sort of little e evolution, which that right. is, right. the other question is, capital E evolution from amoeba to man, as it were, from mm -hmm. microbe to, to humanity. Mm -hmm. uh, that is the grand Darwinian theory. Mm -hmm. Darwin observed the little E evolution. Mm -hmm. and what we're calling here micro evolution, right? Yeah, you know, I tried to avoid micro and macro, even though I used it in the opening statement here, sort right. of. Um, I, I use bounded and unbounded. Okay. There is bounded evolution and that's evolution within boundaries that mm -hmm. that you know you can you can have change mm -hmm. uh, but the unbounded evolution which means from the simplest organism to the highest organism mm -hmm. unbounded right uh, that's what darwin um, was was postulating mm -hmm. moving from the observable to the unobservable mm -hmm. so change happens yep. there is adaptation there is evolution in that sense but the real question is, did it move from uh, the smallest organisms to us? That's the real question. Right. And that's where you've got two problems in one relative right. to sex. Mm. Um, and so the one I think is actually easier to um, explain to people uh, is, is the second one before we get back into the first one. Mm. Uh, the second one, let's just think about it for a minute in the obvious way that trees can't have sex with humans. Mm. Uh, birds can't have sex with flowers, mm. uh, etc. Well, by the theory of common descent, all sexual reproduction in all of these species uh, would have come about uh, through one common process. Mm. So if you back it up to, well, how did trees first reproduce sexually? How did grass reproduce sexually? How did birds reproduce sexually? You know, and they all do reproduce sexually. We're mm -hmm. not the only ones. We humans are not the only ones. Right. So if you back it all the way down, 
you've got to figure out how did you get from one major phyla or uh, group of organisms to another that, that operate completely differently when it comes to sexual reproduction. Mm. That's the first thing. And then you've got uh, from uh, amphibian to reptile, sure. uh, you've got major systems that would have to be um, turned off before you could turn on the new major system right. uh, in the way that they reproduce sexually. Um, now, I'm going to be a little frank here. I uh, hope, hope we can handle this. But yes. um, for all of those organisms, uh, basically animals, that reproduce um, with penile vaginal reproduction, mm -hmm. you just think about it this way. Half of a penis and half of a vagina gets you nowhere. It doesn't get you to the first, the very first species using penile vaginal reproductive processes right it, if you haven't got the, the equipment all right. there together at the same time right you don't get to the first generation much less to the second and third that leads you to higher and higher species right now that so, seems to me to be really easy to talk about right and so as you're talking about this, what's coming to my mind is obviously, like you talked about the, the, the question, most people get stuck like a deer in headlights is, is, you know, do you believe in ev evolution? And so everyone goes, yes, because everyone knows that evolution is true on some level. Mm -hmm. But as you mentioned, Darwin postulated that what was observable, what you've called the little e evolution, the micro evolutions or um, uh, bounded evolution, right? where a bird might hit the feathers might change it to another color and you know and there's the beaks small might lengthen and, and smaller like in the galapagos right. islands right but the the bird doesn't become something dramatically different from what it already was and this idea of postulating okay because i'm observing these smaller um evolutionary changes then therefore that must mean that we all came from this one um you know similar uh, organism uh, um, a common descent, as you mentioned, and that is the that is the main popular narrative that I think is understood when we say evolution. When we say evolution, it's the popularized notion of Darwin's postulation that we all came from the same amoeba and some sludge, and we just needed enough time and electricity, and and here we all are. And obviously, as you as you pointed out in your book in great detail, there's some significant fatal. Uh, gaps in the science of that. But what I want to talk about more so than the science and the gaps therein is what that leads to in our cultural assumptions, especially as Christians in the church, right? How we as Christians navigate in a culture that generally assumes big E evolution. Even though when you start to really dive into it, you realize there's really no scientific logic for this. But it's still generally assumed, right? And so how would you respond to um, a young person, maybe a student in high school or college, or even a parent like myself, raising young children in a culture that has, as far as I can perceive, just massively bought into the big E unbounded evolutionary narrative about the origins of where man comes from? How might you guide and lead and advise folks in that situation? Well, I would say, first of all, that uh, we need to make a distinction between science and faith um, that um, allows us to think about 
origins and implications and alternatives. Origins, implications, and alternatives. Okay. Look, there had to be an origin somewhere. Right. And the facts have to match that understanding with all the other things we know about life. Hmm. And the implications from it, though, um, who was it said ideas have consequences? Hmm. That if, in fact, the origin that, that is proposed by Darwin uh, is that um, we don't need God in the process, that it's a very natural process. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, uh, as much as he refers to the creator in the origin of species, he never believed it. And he was very proud of the fact that he had come up with a system where God was totally unnecessary. Mm-hmm. But, but the problem is if you take God out of the equation, you also take morality out of the equation. Mm. and uh, all the kinds of ethics that flow from morality, business ethics, mm. governmental ethics, political ethics, whatever it might be. You take right. the whole value system out of there. Um, so if there's a chance, unpurposed process that is not determined to go any particular place, and it could go just anywhere it wants, uh, then you have uh, no inherent system of values to go by. Mm. Um, and you add to that um, the kind of catchword of survival of the fittest, for example. Right. Uh, and in nature, we don't think anything about it if the fittest uh, kill the weaker forms right. and, and move on. Mm. Um, now, Darwin himself, I'm going to be real clear about this. Darwin himself didn't sanction any social implications from his theory. Right. Uh, but Adolf Hitler did. Right. Adolf Hitler uh, believed that the Jews were an inferior species. Right. And, you know, extinction is the big word in, in evolution. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't mind extinction of uh, perhaps some forms, but we get all excited about uh, the species to get is becoming extinct. And we raise lots of money to save, save the soon-to-be-extinct species. Uh, well, Hitler took that quite to the contrary with human beings. Right. And uh, that's what explains, in effect, the, the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, if, we, if we don't think about the implications from origins, uh, we're pretty blind to, to what could happen. Now, right. Uh, Let me pause there for, sir, for a second and, and make a comment and ask a question. So obviously, at the heart of this, right, from the what I'll just call secular, or let's just say Darwinian, um, to the Christian um, framework and theological reality and worldview, they're both offering an answer or a proposition to the question of origins, right? Where did we come from and why? And Darwin is saying it's purely natural. There's no need for God. Uh, Luckily, he didn't make social implications of that because obviously if you play that out, it gets pretty gruesome pretty quickly. But for the Christian, the worldview given from the scriptures is that our origins are from God and that we're created in his image. And therefore, it gives us an identity that then flows into things like morality, ethics, uh, why we don't believe that the extinction of a species is um, inherently neutral. And so these two different worldviews are in conflict with each other at this question point of origin and where do we come from and and what does where we come from mean for us so my question would be 
How do you see these two different answers to this question that are being offered? How do you see them being played out on the world stage and in particular in our culture in the West? How do you see those different answers being played out and, and intersecting and conflicting or even maybe converging with each other? Well, I see for one thing, a very disturbing exodus of young people from not only traditional churches, but from faith. Mm. Um, and a lot of militant atheism is taking place. I live uh, five months a year in England. Mm. Uh, and uh, over in Western Europe, France, Germany, England, so forth, uh, faith is just going out the window right and left. Right. Uh, and, um, you know, so what causes this? Well, there could be lots of causes, but, but from my perspective, it all begins with the beginning, with the origins. Right. If, in fact, um, we are the products of a mindless, purposeless, uh, directionless um, process that does not involve God, uh, then we don't need God. Mm. Uh, if we don't need God, then we don't need faith, we don't need church, we don't need any of those trappings. And so we've had now about three or four generations in public education mm. where the only creation story is the Darwinian story. Mm. Uh, that uh, you know, we can't talk about God in the classroom anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, God is basically dead. And was that uh, was that the same for you? By the way, was that already happening in your public education as a young boy? No, no, it was not. Uh, when I was in high school, for example, uh, virtually everybody uh, was a believer in God. Uh, we were church people. I grew up in Texas, Oklahoma, and Alabama, uh, so you know the South. Uh, sure, not exactly uh, the Bible Belt necessarily, but uh, the South and close. And Play, yeah, we did the Pledge of Allegiance. We did, uh, you know, the under God stuff and, and prayers in the classroom were fine. Um, but were you also being taught alongside Darwinian evolutionary origins and theory? Were you also being taught a biblical view of origins simultaneously? Or how did that work? No, not in the classroom, not in the public okay. classroom, because by that time, even, even in the 1960s, uh, by that time, the only story in the science classroom uh, was, uh, was evolution. And, right. and this is interesting too, that in parochial schools, um, after sort of prayers were banned in the public classroom, parochial schools still had prayers. Uh, mm. That would be the Catholics or the private Christian education. They still had prayers in the classroom. Right. But it, that was in homeroom. But down right. the hall in the science classroom, they were right. all being taught evolution. Right. And, that ends up, ends up trumping anything regarding a prayer that you might start the day with. Right. Uh, because that's, you know, well, that's science. That's fact, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, you go to church, well, that's faith, you know. Right. But faith versus fact gets, gets caught in the crunch there. So we have all these uh, generations now who've accepted basically the Darwinian story of, of origins. Right. And uh, if anyone maintains their faith, it's only because of some sentimental value or some deep understanding that, well, we believe there's evolution, but come on, guys, we know that can't be the, the story, that can't be the case. There's got to be a God, there's got to be an afterlife, there's got to be consequences to how we live in this world. There's still that, um, who was it that said, talked about the cut flower generation, Elgin Trueblood, I think, mm. that, that we still have values that, uh, 
are appended to God and to faith and to the Bible and the church and so forth, uh, even though otherwise in the other part of our brain, uh, you know, we don't accept any of that as being really valid. Uh, mm. So we're kind of schizophrenic in that sense. But if you had, if, if, if indeed, if indeed we're the product of natural selection only, a natural mm. process, and there never was a God, we wouldn't have the values we have today. We would have survival of the fittest. We would have extinction right. of uh, the Jews if we didn't think they were up to snuff. Uh, we would have uh, uh, a culture that has no rules except mm. survival and you do your own thing. Right. We have the luxury, and atheists even have the luxury of a culture that does have roots in faith. Mm. And so almost, almost, uh, as you mentioned that, it's like the atheist actually, in our context, gets, gets the best of both worlds. You know, they get to have their cake and eat it too. They don't have to believe in God, but they don't live in a society that, that really acts like that. You know, they're still living in a society with morality and ethics, and they're being treated fairly and being protected when the atheistic worldview or even a Darwinian worldview of origins doesn't really, um, it doesn't logically conclude in that. So it's almost like you get to have it both ways, you know? Yeah, and if you want to see the, the other side of the story, uh, you just point to a culture that is completely atheistic, and that's the, the former Soviet Union, now Russia, mm. uh, where uh, faith was obliterated. They tried to obliterate faith, uh, mm. giving just a little bit of uh, lip service to the Russian Orthodox Church to maintain loyalty there. But uh, you look at the kind of culture that they have produced out of an atheistic society. You look at all this, the, the cultures that have tried to denigrate God. You look at Western Europe today, it's spinning apart. You look at the United States today, a almost post-Christian nation, despite all the lip service, mm. and we're, we're tearing ourselves apart. The values that we once had are not biblical values. They are, they are imposed values trying to fill the vacuum of mm. values that are natural that do come from the Bible. Mm. And so let me just say this, that, that that's the real danger mm. of, of the movement now in the church. And I mean, throughout virtually all the, the churches of accepting what is known as evolutionary creation. Um, my friend Doug believes mm. in evolutionary creation. He believes that God created Mm -hmm. but he did it through a Darwinian process. Well, I'm sorry, but A, the lawyer mind in me says, uh, that's an oxymoron. You cannot simultaneously have a natural process that's unguided and purposed toward no particular end, and simultaneously a supernatural process in which God's finger somehow, some way, uh, is influencing the outcome toward a particular uh, end result. Uh, not only does it does it require some really incredible theologizing uh, of Genesis, uh, but it has what you do with Genesis has major implications for what happens in the rest of the Bible, and you mm. start having to play games. Oh, what a tangled web we weave! Once you do that, because you've got genealogies that assume an Adam and Eve, you've got uh, Paul referring doctrinal bases. Uh, when he talks about the man was created before the woman and so forth. And, and so what, what happens is that the evolutionary creationists 
are forced to say, first of all, no, God didn't do anything during the process of evolution from microbe to man. He, he didn't touch it at all because they know it's got to be a natural process. And they say it could have ended up without human beings. But now that we're here, and because we want to think that we are made in the image of God and to, to think that we have a soul that survives uh, to an afterlife, then suddenly all sorts of theories come in as to when and how God at the last minute uh, when you had uh, near humans, but not humans, hmm. stamps his image on these near humans. And they suddenly become humans, like we know, with all the values and spiritual aspects and so forth that we want to believe in. Well, I'm, I'm sorry, it, it just doesn't work. You, you can't have God intervene at that point into beings that you've already said had anything gone differently in the process of natural evolution, we wouldn't even be here for God to give us souls. Mm. So it just doesn't work. I'm sorry. Right. Do you I think have no that, opinions about this. None, none <laughs> at all, I can tell, yes. And so I'm, I'm imagining that there probably will be quite a few people who are hearing this for the first time, and this could be perhaps a bit rattling. And so what might you offer um, to help someone navigate through um, some of these, um, you know, disturbances in a foundational understanding of the question of origins as well as uh, the questions of science. Because even as you said earlier in this um, discussion, you said that, you know, evolution is true. There is a level of evolution that is absolutely scientifically proven and able to be observed and re uh, replicated. And, and so we, we uh, consider that to be true. So how can we, on one hand, view a level of evolution as true, and also how can we, at the, at the same time, view um, the creation narrative of the scriptures and our identity and origins coming from God and being his image bearers? How can those two simultaneously and concurrently exist in the mind of the believer, especially the person who's not doing great scholarship or research in any of this? Yeah. You know, first of all, what I would say is, um, forget the Bible, forget Genesis, forget that story. Just, just for a moment, lay it to the side. Don't even think about that. Go back and, and think about evolution as to whether it is a viable theory itself. Hmm. Okay. Now we know things change. We know there's evolution within, uh, within species. That's, that's, there's adaptation, et cetera. We've covered that. The, what we need to do next is to ask ourselves, would it have been possible to move from asexual to sexual? And ask very simple questions. Wouldn't you need evolution to provide simultaneously the very first ever female? the very first ever male of whatever organism, however tiny, insignificant, and simple. The very first male and the very first female, wouldn't you have to have each of those to get sexual reproduction? Then, wouldn't they have to have that developed simultaneously? And wouldn't they have to move from, now high school kids would be familiar with this, from mitosis, which is simply copy, 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 to meiosis, which is a mix and match between the male and the female, producing a unique offspring. I mean, there's a gap there that, right. that evolution could not fill because it has to happen 
in a single generation. Otherwise, you don't get to the next generation. And that's the right. origin of sex. It's just a right. simple question. How, how do you get a male and female simultaneously with all the bells and whistles they need to move on right. to the next, the second generation of sexually reproducing? Okay, so just ask that simple question. And light bulbs go on. You know, when I ask that question, people have never thought about right. that. Yeah, you need a male right. and a female. And what's interesting is when you jump back over to the Bible, by the way, it says God made them. Male and female made them. He them. Well, that solves that problem. Right. But, but that's the Bible. So again, shove it off the table for a minute. And right. then you come back and you say, now, let's think about any given animal or tree or grass, all of whom reproduce sexually. What happened between that species and the immediately preceding species, according to the theory that one led to the other? If they don't, if you know how we define a species, John, we define a species, and Darwin himself says this, we define a species most by how they reproduce. There are millions of species out there, and they each reproduce uniquely. It's not mix and match. It, they have different chromosomes. They have different uh, uh, transmission mechanisms. Uh, they don't all use penises and vaginas. They, you know, they have their own way of doing it. Mm -hmm. And um, each species is unique. So you'd have to move from one to the other. Well, how do, you, how do you do that with a halfway thing? So what I'm asking young people in particular to do is ask hard questions mm. at the transition points. Mm. Don't, don't give me you know, the train traveling fast. Give me details. How would it have possibly happened from a mechanistic standpoint? How do you move from A to B? Mm. And then there's an analogy that I find helpful. And, and that is uh, what I call the uh, police radar analogy. <laughs> mm -hmm. The police radar analogy. Okay, so uh, the police are sitting at the side of the road and uh, they're radaring everybody that's going by. And some car goes by and it's doing 90 miles an hour. Now, logically, logically, what could you possibly say? about where the driver of that car was the previous hour. 90 miles Logically, away. It was 90 miles away. Right. But do any of us think that he was driving 90 miles an hour for an hour from some distance 90 miles away? No. We all understand. He probably came on the highway five miles back down the road, kicked it up to 90, and he got caught by the radar. Mm. So is it logical to believe that he was 90 miles away an hour ago yes yes that's logical but is it likely no it's not likely what right. darwin did was to observe as it were 90 miles an hour and say you know it was an hour ago it was 90 miles away so he, his his logic is impeccable in a way right it's just wrong <laughs> it's just right. wrong and so that's a that's a unique distinction that I think bears, you know, reiterating. And this is what you're talking about with Darwin's secret sex problem is that. And to just to do, I guess, a play on words here is that part of what's so sexy and appealing about Darwin's theory is that it is so logically sound, but it's just highly unlikely. And I think that that sends the, the message with the 90 mile an hour radar uh, police analogy that, yes, it's logical to say that that could have happened. 
but it's unlikely because there are all these gaps that would never have allowed that to happen. But there's an appeal to Darwin's logic, and, and perhaps that's um, part of what has helped the, the big E evolutionary narrative become so popularized. So as we get ready to wrap up here, what do you think would be the best course of action for a person in the audience hearing this and maybe they're part of the population that is like a deer in the headlights when they get asked the question that you posed earlier and they're listening to this and they perhaps feel uh, maybe even more confused than they were before. They're even more frozen in these headlights. What would be kind of the first step that you would recommend someone to take? A walk. A walk. Okay. Take a walk. Take a walk. Just take a walk and look around you and say, I don't know anything. I don't know diddly squat about science. But I'm someone who can reason and I can think. And I look at a tree and I think, did that come about by chance? Random. Mm. Did that come about by some kind of random force? Uh, look at a blade of grass, a single blade of grass. Uh, look at the sky. Look at the stars at night, the sun, the moon, and so forth. Listen, it takes the whole package. We, sometimes we get so focused in on uh, evolution of uh, organisms that we tend to forget there's an earth here. There's mountains, there's oceans, and there's seas. And, and, and you know, there's lots of ec evolutionary explanations for all of these things. But come on, at some point, the odds of everything working the way it does, uh, it, it just boggles the mind. And I want right. to shake people, particularly Christian people who are trying to accommodate evolution in the big E sense. Mm -hmm. I want to shake them and say, thou fool, just look around you. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and your, your mind races and, and says, no, this is not something that could have happened by chance. As a former DA, I used to watch autopsies and, you know, I looked down in the human body and in the words of David, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. This didn't happen by chance. Right. And so for all the young parents out there, uh, like myself, who have children uh, growing up in a culture and in an educational system that only offers really this one uh, narrative, this one view of the question of origins and where we start, I would like to offer that we are able to uh, describe and explain and even believe in another narrative. Because I think uh, for myself, growing up in an education system that was a part of those generations that you mentioned, Lagarde, that have only had one narrative offered, um, I had no way of understanding any other worldview. And it wasn't until I became a person of faith and, before I and when I became a Christian that I then started to understand there is actually other uh, narratives out there explaining answers to these same questions. And so I would encourage uh, young people and uh, parents of young people to be equipped with another narrative and not just leave it to culture to offer the only answers to these kinds of questions. Yeah, that's great. But there's a real trap here. And the trap is that the only other narrative is really scripture and what it has to say about origins. Unless mm. you take the, the walk and think about a God who would be necessary right. to, to answer all this. The problem is that, that when you go into culture and go into classrooms and the only origin story you're told seems so credible and that you would be just a fool to 
uh, to buck that narrative. If you, if you really buy off on that, then if you try to go to the scriptures, to Bible, to Genesis, no, I'm sorry, it's already lost its credibility. Right. It's already lost its credibility. You can't go there for that narrative because the Bible must, of necessity, be wrong. Mm. If Darwinism is right, mm. everybody knows the Bible story is wrong. And if the Bible mm. is wrong at its beginning, it's wrong throughout. So mm. it's, a, it's a real tough call here. Uh, right. I, I think we need, as believers, as Christians, to rely a whole lot less on the scripture. Because if you start with scripture to people who, no long, who, who do not believe that scripture uh, is valid because it talks about God, a right. God that's not needed because we have evolution, right. it's a non-starter. Right. You can't use that anymore exclusively. You're going to have so to go through some kind of a reasoning process before you get to scripture. What are maybe a couple of resources that you might point people to Besides, obviously, your book. <laughs> yeah, in my books, I don't know. My book uh, it's pretty deep. So, um, you know, that's not the best book to start with, maybe. Uh, though it's, it's the most powerful argument that I know of against, you know, that shows the bad science of evolution. Um, I, I don't know what other sources to, to, to tell you, to be honest. Uh, because if you go to the normal creation group, they're using the Bible almost exclusively to combat mm -hmm. science. And right. I've already explained that doesn't work. Right. It doesn't work. Right. Um, so I'm not going to send people to, to those sources. Right. If, you know, so I, I, again, take the walk, take right. the walk. Right. And once you realize uh, that this world is just too complex and too, um, I mean, it's, it's beyond all random possibilities. Right. Then you go right. back to God. And if, and if you then get to God, then, then you go to Scripture and right. more definitively right. you can work from there. I actually reviewed uh, John Lennox's book earlier this year, Can Science Explain Everything? And I thought that was a, a very accessible, readable volume, just 100 short pages. Um, I think that might be a great um, uh, starting place, a resource that people can go to that starts to cover across a broad swath of uh, apologetic issues going from an atheistic, naturalistic worldview to a deistic, theistic worldview that can then maybe get you to the Bible because you've covered uh, enough of the gaps that exist that are often minimized or just completely vaporized in the cultural narrative. And so Lagarde, thank you so much for joining us here today. I really appreciate it. And uh, so grateful for the work that you're doing and the ways that you're trying to influence those around you uh, to be able to go and take that walk and be in awe and wonder of an amazing creator God that we have. Thank you again. Thank you, John. Thank you for listening to this Faith Fuel podcast. We look forward to seeing you next time.